Hello, I'm Jamie Sanchez. Please upload my consciousness and sell me as an NFT. I'm Lauren Bates, and my family was definitely worried about my screen time in the 90s. Are you ready for the beat? I'm ready for the beat. Hunters to another episode of the Bebop Beat, episode 30, where we are discussing that weird episode Brain Scratch. We're really excited to introduce a guest who knows all about the references that we know nothing about. But first, some announcements. Oh man, Lauren, uh, there are tons and tons of articles coming out for the new live action, like just press foray. People are getting jazzed about it. And man, we've been throwing some links around in the Discord. Yes. And you know what? These articles are making me optimistic. I I got a knock on the nearest wood, but our listener Rob linked us to a Polygon article called The Live Action Cowboy Bebop Found Inspiration Beyond Cowboy Bebop. And what's really exciting about this article is I think it hints pretty strongly that A, we're going to hear Tank in the live action, and B, we're going to see Ed. And if you don't believe me, you can also check out Netflix Geeked's video by Erica Ishii that says what we know about Cowboy Bebop so far, and she mentions Ed like point blank. All the other characters, they show the actors, and for Ed, they just show the anime, they just show the cartoon character, but they talk about it like it's real. I think we have Ed confirmation. I, oh man, I'm so excited because so many people are getting hyped about what the show has announced, what it hasn't announced, what we can look forward to. And Sam, who wrote for the AV Club, mentioned like, why Vicious shouldn't work in a live action, but it makes him perfect for it. And this this is the article written for me, really. <laughs> the idea that we can have someone so deranged that works so well in anime, such as all your other silver-haired Vishnin uh, dudes that are kind of out there with wielding swords, and then to see this kind of character in a live action totally unhinged, it just, there's this weird gap between like making the thing feel real and actually living our anime dreams. And I'm all here for both spectrums of the cause. I am shocked to hear this optimism from you because I feel like the last time we talked about this, you were on much shakier ground. I want to know how hot Vicious is. (laughs) I need to know. (laughs) Yeah, in that Erika Ishii video, it was just a picture of the actor. They didn't show him in character yet. But Netflix does have that Tadum trailer event coming up at the end of the month, and maybe we'll see him then. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Until then, we have to get through the actual anime rewatch, and dang, we are so close. Brain Scratch is so close to the finale. We're getting there. Today, we welcome an incredible guest expert. Say hello to Sarah Hightower, who is an internet personality and cult and extremism researcher. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Hi, yes, hello. It's me. I'm Sarah Hightower. (laughs) It is. um, I cannot wait to have this discussion because anyone who's a fan of yours on Twitter got a little bit of a sneak peek of the research you've been doing and the comparisons you've been making between this episode of anime and real-life occurrences. Just such a deep well of knowledge, stuff that Jamie and I know like nothing about. And we know that after today, you're going to be sharing some of that on Twitter as well. So we'll be sure to plug that so our listeners can follow along with you. Like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's like a mutual back scratch, a mutual brain scratch. Oh, dang. (laughs) (laughs) We're at it already. So before we dive into the bulk of the episode, we wanted to know how you got into extremist and cult activity research. Somebody I loved uh, got mixed up with a really bad kind of group when I was really young, and that there was no happy ending there. So my brain was already pointed towards that. And then 9-11 happened, which is, you know, it's a good origin story when someone could just like come out in the middle and be like, and then 9-11 happened, but then 9-11 happened. And uh, the backlash was pretty racist. And one thing I heard a lot was, well, you don't see any Buddhist terrorists, do you? But little baby weeb Sarah already knew that 
there was at least one group of Buddhist terrorists. That group of Buddhist terrorists was Om Shinrikyo. So I've been following like Om and Om developments ever since like 2001. And now we're here. So how do you execute your research? And when you're dealing with like literal misinformation, how are you sure that what you find is credible? I just throw it out there. Honestly, as for what I do now, I, I go to the sources. I go out to like these, these fringe hellscapes online and in real life. And you monitor what happens there. You keep track of what's being said. You take notes of trends and you talk to other people who are doing the same. And the sort of people I talk to are the sort of people who are trying to get their PhDs in extremism studies and things like that. When we talk to the journalists on the uh, disinformation beats and the, uh, the extremism beats, it's kind of sad that we have extremism beats in modern journalism, but like that's where we are. So as far as like, how can I tell that what I'm doing and, you know, these weird predictions I'm making, you know, are credible. Well, three years ago, I, I had this major Cassandra complex, you know, and I'm screaming into the void to anyone who will listen, like, hey, this QAnon thing, like, it's not just going to go away. It's going to keep growing. It's going to keep getting worse. And it might turn into something like Om Shinrikyo. And now we're here. So sometimes, unfortunately, history will vindicate you. It's really tough to be right and to feel like you can see that sort of thing coming at you and be unsure that there's anything you can do. I, I feel like for a lot of average Americans, the word cult means, you know, something in the past like Jonestown. But I think it's pretty clear from what you're saying that cults and extremism are around us right now. So what traits or activities should people be looking out for to identify these movements? I mean, if you're thinking about like warning signs that, you know, this, this scene or this group or this relationship might be bad, like there are some red flags. If any person or any group tries to tell you that they have the truth, and more often than not, it's going to be some sort of hidden truth that's either, you know, just now being discovered or something that has been deliberately kept from them, kept from you. That's a big red flag. If somebody tries to limit like your communication with people who do not necessarily agree with either this individual or this group's, you know, beliefs or just basics of what they're trying to get across to you. If they try to keep you from outside influences, that's another big red flag. And you can look at things like that. Um, if there's a group, or even if it's just like a Facebook group, right? And you say or do something that goes against these conventional norms that this group has laid down for itself, and you like get like they retaliate, that's another big red flag, like excommunication, shaming, expecting you to do self-criticism sessions to placate like the people in this little group that you found yourself in. That's a big red flag too. There are all sorts of warning signs. And like I said, more often than not, like it's going to have more in common with an abusive relationship, you could say, than just uh, jumping straight to the quote unquote Kool-Aid drinking. So you mentioned Facebook, which we know has been a common place for these kind of misinformation campaigns or lack of truths campaigns. So what in particular about cults do they like what techniques or technologies do they use? How do they reach people and draw them in, even though they might look a little benign on the surface? Every cult is different, and every person's like experience with a cultic group or a high demand group or anything of that nature is going to be different. What makes something palatable to to one individual, individual A, say, individual B is probably going to get something different out of it. And, and their, their pathway into it is going to be different. The thing is, these groups, they always hide the sort of you know, group that they actually are in the beginning. So let's take QAnon, for example. QAnon, most people didn't just sign up to be in this anti-Semitic digital death cult. Most people weren't, you know, hardened white supremacists or anti-Semites, racists, or, you know, in some cases, even Trump supporters to begin with. It started out with them doing research. Somebody tapped them on the shoulder, sent them a link to a, a Facebook group 
or an above top secret forums post, or, you know, their yoga instructor shared something that, you know, it always hides its true intention. So you have healing crystal ants and country music pep peps spending a little much, like too much time online. And then they slowly get immersed into another system of thinking. So they entirely different belief system. And over time it reveals itself. And then before you know it, like, they're just full-fledged, hardcore QAnon. Om Shinrikyo is still around today. Om Shinrikyo does similar things. So Om Shinrikyo, obviously, they can't say we're Olive. We're Om Shinrikyo. So what they do is they will go online and they'll pretend to be an astrology club or a book club. Uh, we've even seen them pretend to be cooking clubs. Like, hey, do you like curry? Well, we're a cooking circle that just exchanges curry recipes. And then they bring you in and they start feeding you little tiny things. And bit by bit, they uh, sort of prime you and get you ready for the next like, stage of this belief system. And over time, slowly but surely, you become more open, more receptive to what the group's like actual bullshit is. And then when they think you're ready, they'll tell you, hey, we're actually Om Shinrikyo. But they wait until they know that you'll be more likely to go, yeah, that makes sense. But they did you all dirty. And you didn't really do it. And everything's an inside job. So that's cool. It's different for every group. It's different for every person. And they've cults and, and extremist groups have been utilizing technology since uh, the early to mid 80s with the Aryan Liberty Net, with uh, what Tom Metzger uh, skinheads used to have going on. I want to say like back in 83. So. so we've been talking about how people we trust and have healthy relationships might be drawn towards misinformation and harmful activities. For example, I have a family member who believes space aliens are here on Earth. And uh, I wonder if we should persuade that someone to look at things through a more critical science-based lens. Do you think it's possible? And when should we continue participating in their lives versus moving on? I think it's different for each person. Like if, if you're in a position to where you can maintain contact with this loved one and be like sort of an anchor at the very least for this loved one, and you can do it without it being detrimental to your well-being, it's recommended, actually. There's a fine line between trying to anchor somebody and enabling and, you know, some people, they do have to kind of cut off contact for their own well-being. And there's absolutely nothing shameful, nothing wrong with that. But yeah, no, actually, if, if you can, you know, safely try, or at the very least, keep the lines of communication open, that, uh, that actually can help. Because some people, once they start realizing that they're in a bad group, and they realize that, okay, they bought into some stuff that's just absolutely not true. And they realize that, you know, okay, this is actually psychologically harmful. This is hurting. They may be afraid to leave the group because the group has replaced all of their norms, all of their relationships. So if they know that there's at least one person on the outside who is still sympathetic and can help guide them out, if you can be that person, I think it's a good idea. I just uh, want to defend myself and say that I think aliens are real, Jamie. <laughs> but are they here on this planet right now? But you don't even know it because they're humans. Okay, that's a different discussion entirely. (laughs) Just checking, because we're doing a podcast about science fiction, and I believe aliens are real. (laughs) Fair, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Speaking of science fiction, let's get into Cowboy Bebop. The episode Brain Scratch really handles these topics in a way that I don't think I appreciated any previous watch through before this one. With the things we have going on in our society right now, uh, with knocking on heaven's door, it was COVID-19. With this, it's QAnon. Cowboy Bebop is just hitting different, as we keep saying. So before we get into this rewatch, let's talk a little bit about when this episode premiered. This is a classic 90s anime. What did we see in the news, Sarah, regarding cults at that time? And why do we think Cowboy Bebop's creators would choose cults as an episode topic for an anime season that is so short? Let's see. Uh, I checked the air date for this episode in particular. It was uh, early 1999, wasn't it? Yeah, very late 90s. 
Yeah. So um, it would have gone into production in between 97, 98, I think. So like the Ulm affair was still fresh on everybody's minds. And as far as other cult activity goes, uh, the Heaven's Gate mass suicides, that was 1997. That was big news. And uh, Order of the Solar Temple, 94 and 95, you had uh, those groups of mass suicides associated with the OTS in various countries. So I think those would like, be the three big ones. You had like Waco before that, but that's very different. But you're talking about a, a Japanese production that also, you know, borrows from Western influences. For the time that this came out, Om Shrikyo and Heaven's Gate would have been the two big ones. This episode opens with us, the viewer, watching television. We are tuned in to Channel 95, and we hear a voice, the cult leader Londis telling us that we need to let go of our desire. He condemns desire, naming it the cause of war and other strife in the world. And the cult scratch introduces itself as disciples of God sent here to awaken your soul. There's a web address, and we're clearly like experiencing what a normal citizen would experience browsing through, you know, channel surfing and maybe stumbling across this. This is a recruitment tactic, and we're going to learn just how effective it is when the channel gets changed. We see a news program from the cosmic broadcasting community with Mark Rather and Samantha Copeland, and they're talking about how the ISSP and all Seoul police are now breaking in to Scratch's highest-ranking members' homes because members of this, quote, insane order have begun to commit suicide. And this already really strikes me based on some of the things Sarah was just saying about how long ago she was able to kind of see QAnon off in the distance. I think it's implied that people have known about Scratch for a while but only now that it's escalated to the point of death does society actually start to care. And that's already very dark. We are starting off on a dark note. To that end, they mentioned that 200,000 people have been recruited and 100 are missing or have committed suicide at this point. So it took them quite a while to even care. But one thing that's really interesting, and we'll see this throughout the episode, is this parallel between cults, religious beliefs, and dreams. And these are all things that are kind of intertwined as the story progresses. What is a dream? Why are people disconnected from this wretched world? And the release of suffering, at least on the corporeal sense, seems to be the main driver why Scratch members are joining and uploading their consciousness. Another piece of information we learn right away from the television is that Scratch is using a game console called the Brain Dream to scan brainwaves and supposedly copy the cultist selves into this universal network. Members of Scratch believe they become souls without bodies. I thought this was a really uh, poignant take also on the 90s, because not only were cults in the news, but definitely so were video games. I was super a kid growing up with my Atari and my Super Nintendo and then skipped to PS2, but like all I did in every second of my free time as a kid was play video games to the point where, like I said in the opening, my parents were a little bit worried about me. This is such a product of its time. Some people may recall that video game violence was in the news in this time period. One example was in 1997, the case Wilson versus Midway Games came to be, in which a young child stabbed his friend to death, and the game Mortal Kombat was blamed. Mortal Kombat ended up... Uh, not being declared legally liable. There was uh, not a successful lawsuit against video games in that case, but the damage was done in terms of what parents thought video games could do to kids' brains, for sure. 
So what are some of the examples that you spotted in these opening images that are directly related to those real life organizations? I saw some of this on Twitter already, but apparently Cowboy Bebop was really bold in the imagery they were using. Is that correct? Yeah, I've the only time I've ever seen or heard of an anime like directly uh, referencing Om Shurikyo like this hard was the third series of City Hunter where somebody spliced in a a subliminal image of Shoko Asahara during the campaign for like half a second. So no, this, I mean, you can start from the very beginning. You you noted that uh, the uh, actual uh, scratch propaganda video was on channel 95. I don't think that's a coincidence. It's 95. I mean, even Penguin Drum used 95 in the same way to signal 1995 sarin attacks. You know, the Alma Fair blowing up big. But the thing is, uh, you start out, with that scratch propaganda video and there are some shots and even just the way the cult leader is drawn in lotus position they directly mimic om shinrikyo propaganda uh specifically some of the animated stuff like the uh, om shinrikyo anime op is a meme here and in japan shoko asahara is drawn sitting in that same lotus position in all of the om shinrikyo anime openings and in the background, you see all of the war, all of the bad things, those panels just kind of floating by while he's floating in this like digital universe. Oshin Rikyo did uh, similar things in some of their Nostradamus prophecy propaganda. They leaned really hard on the impending disaster angle for a while, famously so. And what the cult leader is saying about desire being, you know, directly related to suffering, suffering, desire, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's kind of like Buddhism 101. But it's also what Asahara preached. So Asahara would take like these basic tenements of Buddhism and he would say, you know, like desire and suffering and all of the bad things that happen in this world are the result of our bad karma. We accrue this negative karma, this bad karma, because we're selfish. We don't live good lives. Our souls haven't been cleansed. We hold on to these attachments. So the purpose of Om Shinrikyo is to not only, you know, get these transcendental superpowers and survive the apocalypse and stuff, it's also to alleviate the suffering of all sentient beings. And to do so, you have to sever yourself from desire. And doing so will cut the bad karma that Shoko Asahara will take into himself and then cleanse. So that's where this episode starts, like directly mimicking Om. And then from there, uh, the uh, the new stuff... <laughs> You skip past the uh, the Dan Rather and go to the uh, Insane Order Scratch part. And that is directly referencing the way uh, tabloid media constantly covered Ulm. Like you said that you see how successful Scratch putting their propaganda on TV is when it cuts to this coverage, right? Yes, people care now because people have died. So the media is very invested and it's all that's on the media. This is exactly what happened after the Saren attack. So the insane or scratch bits, shot by shot in, in some cases, they directly mimic the way a wide show tabloids would just run thousands of hours about Ohm. That's pretty wild that we have like direct one-to-one comparisons mm-hmm. in this episode. In all of my years of watching Cowboy Bebop and rewatching it, I had no idea that that was the level of like all this complexity, this historical connotation in Japan. And it really gave me the impression that this episode, the author of the episode itself, Dai Sato, is really affected by these things. He took a lot of these kind of things and many existential kind of plot points in other episodes of other series, such as Ghost in the Shell, Standalone Complex, in addition to the new 2045 film, Into Wolf's Rain, Samurai Champloo, Eureka 7, Ergo Proxy, Eden of the East, and most recently, Listeners. These are all shows about like the human condition, what it's like to suffer, and you know, how that really affects and changes society. When I when I mentioned how like shot for shot, it's you know, taking taking a swipe at these uh, these tabloid news programs. Uh, you mentioned uh, where they're breaking into the leader's house, like the cops are rolling up. With Alma Fair coverage, that that was uh, the cops during the mass raids breaking into one of the Tokyo headquarters, like that shot where, you know, they're at the door and then the cops are coming in. And then there's a shot where they're discussing uh, the suicides and they're pushing a, a cult member. They're wheeling him on, on a bed and he's got like that green blood. They're directly referencing the way uh, Hideo Mirai, Alma's number two, 
was assassinated on live TV and the cameras just kept rolling. The cameras kept rolling as he got stabbed and he stood around recording until the ambulance finally showed up and the cameras followed his body on this gurney to the ambulance. So that's um, that shot is also they're they're really taking it to TV. So as much as this is an episode about like cults and stuff, when you bring up the television stuff, it, he, they're taking it to TV and how TV not only kind of makes these things, but also how, you know, they wait until it's too late and then they cash in. I definitely agree with that analysis. We see so many other television genres blink by as well. We hear from a professor from the Mars University School of Medicine. We see a telephone shopping show with a sort of like ShamWow slap chop sort of guy. We see um, a commentary on broadcasting censorship on one of the channels, which was an interesting thing to get thrown in there. And we see Faye Valentine. The Bebop crew remarks that they haven't seen her in a long time. And there she is amidst the people of Scratch wearing the uniform saying, if I get rid of my body, I won't need money. So cut to Jet and Spike, unsure, is this a scam? Is she playing us? And for a brief second, we get to have kind of a a sigh of relief. We get a moment of comedy after that television onslaught, where once again, the Bebop crew is hungry. And was that Spike pouring beer into his food? Was that what, is that what I saw? It sure was. Uh, right as he remarks that Londas has a tasteless face. Um, he's clearly got food on the mind. And the Bebop crew is yet again tracking down a bounty so they can feed themselves. So before we dive into the whole of the search for Londas, I do want to know, why does Spike end up looking for Faye? Like, they, they recognize that Faye is caught up in this and they could easily go find a different bounty. But is this because, hey, you know, Faye's clearly gotten into some shit, we got to bring her back, or Londis's bounty is actually very lucrative, or maybe Jet asked really nicely. What compels the crew to go after her this time? I think it's a combination of things. I, I think if this is a commentary on a large and influential and extremely dangerous cult, I think it's pretty easy for them to assume Faye probably is in real danger, and we probably should give a shit about this. This isn't just her off gambling somewhere. This is a suicide cult. But there's something else I wanted to bring up that I think ties into this, and that is the state of bounty hunting at this point of the series. Big Shot gets canceled this episode. Their ratings are low, And Judy comments that Londis is the first big bounty they've had in forever. Even though he's this high dollar amount, he has no information out there about him. And so Big Shot, as this resource for bounty hunters, is is not doing its job. It's not being helpful. It's saying, we finally have a hit and we can't tell you anything about this $38 million guy we're going off the air. And maybe that has something to do with it. It's like the only bounty available. Well, to that end, they weren't very helpful in the movie either. So uh, maybe Big Shot is the reason our heroes aren't so great at their job after all. They're just not giving them appropriate information or maybe all the good big bounties are like swept up before they even have a shot to air them. I was kind of trying to figure out if this was a commentary on the profession overall. Like, Is there less crime now for some reason? Are we seeing a progression in society? I don't know. But our bounty is Dr. Londes. He's allegedly 95 years old. And the story that we're fed about him is that he was in uh, neurobiology research until one day he was called by God and went missing for 50 years. We, We later learn maybe... Why, when they go looking for him, nobody has ever seen him. The cultists say he's in heaven. Jet tracks down an old colleague who seems too senile to remember anything. Hmm. Much like how Boogie Woogie Feng Shui comes towards the end of the series, I see Brain Scratch's placement as the end of the series because 
there's this culmination of finales and there's like a big deal about endings here. I mean, there's tons of foreshadowing here. Like Spike is walking through dim hallways that seem to be abandoned. Big Shot is canceled. Some fans speculate that one of our three old dudes dies in the search for Londa's. There's this constant speculation about what is a dream. And there's just these themes reemerge about dealing with kids or kid-like mentalities. A lot of the stuff we've already touched on through the entire series just kind of resurfaces in this episode. And I think what's really wonderful, at least about Faye's representation, is that she shows a little bit of vulnerability, right? There's this idea that she went out to search for Londis to get the big bounty, but there's also this desperation in her trying to eliminate her debt, or perhaps this idea that she can escape it somehow through what the cult promises. And this all adds to the the sense of impending end we're going to be facing in the next few episodes. To some of your points, I think another thing this episode is saying is that no matter how many one-on-one sort of criminal do-baddies there are out there to chase, society is always going to be plagued by bigger problems that the Bebop crew cannot control or do anything about. They could, in theory, stop Londis, but one of the things that gets me really curious about this episode is what happens when there is no Londis. Uh, A group doesn't necessarily need a specific figurehead. Obviously, cults often sort of coagulate around one leader, but 200,000 people is a lot of people. And this isn't just going to stop because Spike Spiegel did his job. Sarah, is that actually true? Like, do cult leaders really perpetuate the movement or do cults kind of have this kind of escape velocity where they're off the rails? It's a give and take relationship. I mean, just a guru without his followers is just a lunatic on the street corner, right? But then once you've laid down this manner of thinking, once you have these followers, once this stops being whatever small gathering it was and becomes a full-fledged belief system, it will survive without its charismatic leader. We still have Scientology. We still have Om Shinrikyo. We still have QAnon. There are still Davidians at the same uh, brand of Adventists at Waco. It doesn't just go away or die with an individual. An individual or a point in which you can coalesce, yeah, that's a factor. You're going to need that in the beginning, yeah, but I don't know. If it all just depended on one sort of leading figure, we wouldn't have neo-Nazis anymore because they shot Rockwell. But we still have those things. And the American Nazi Party survived long after George Lincoln Rockwell, so. Not to get too dark here, but I guess fandom in its own right is exhibits cult-like behavior. Absolutely. Uh, We are Cowboy Bebop Podcast, talking about it 23 years after its creation, so... Fandom, uh, especially online, internet fandom, yeah, it can be very toxic and in some circumstances very cultic. But just being a fan of something and liking something, that's, I mean, that's just human nature. We're going to like things. We're going to be fans of things. Certain pieces of media or, you know, personalities, like they're going to speak to us, we're going to pick up what they're putting down, and we're going to to some extent, make that a part of our personality, part of our identity. But like, it doesn't always have to go off the rails. Like you're doing a Bebop podcast that I'm on here, you know, vibing and weaving. But if someone were to come along and say that they think Cowboy Bebop is overrated, like we're not going to go online and direct our followers to like hurt that person or troll that person. I don't know. Some of the fan posts I've seen online lately, woof. (laughs) Don't take us there, Jamie. Don't take us there. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's been really great talking with you, mostly because I'm starting to connect the dots between belonging and what the Bebop crew offers as a family. That is yet another reason this episode appears so late in the series, and I think that really drives home all these relationships, right? Faye goes off to join a cult for unknown reasons, but in the end, she does call the Bebop when she's in trouble because she looks to her family to help save her. Uh, Yeah, also, like, you were wondering, you were speculating, you know, as to, like, why Spike and the crew may have gone to save Faye. There's, like, this line Spike says, uh, 
when they're flipping through the TV news coverage of Scratch and stuff, Spike says people are allowed to believe whatever they want, like it's up to them. And then they see Faye. But I don't think that Spike necessarily believes that Faye believes it wholeheartedly. So I think maybe like in that light, it makes it makes sense that they'd go and try to save her because she didn't just join a cult because she believes it. So he's not really like interfering with her freedom of choice by trying to save her if or when she gets in trouble. That was a question Jamie and I were actually debating before we did this rewatch. And I'm curious what we think now. Did Faye infiltrate this group to catch a bounty and then get sucked in? Or did she do this on purpose to escape her debt? Given everything we've experienced with Faye through this entire rewatch, it's clear that she needs some kind of companionship or, you know, she wants to be invited or fawned over. But I think those feelings have really dulled or at least declined throughout the episode. She's still very lost about who she is and where she belongs, but I think she has found a home with the Bebop. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. Well, I think what it leads to is my answer, which is that it's both. I, having watched this now, I think she went in to go after Londis and then got stuck. And by the time we find her, she's really in scratch. But to that end, then she wouldn't have gone to find Londis and found the Tower of Televisions, right? It seems like only bounty hunters got that far. Wasn't she carrying a gun when she went into the TV pyramid room? Yes. She wanted she yeah. wanted to stop him. But I mean, like, you wouldn't be packing heat going to see the leader if you if you were really fully brainwashed and you were a true believer. Yeah, my personal theory is she felt herself drifting. Like she felt herself getting pulled either by the ideals or by whatever actual misty woo-woo TV tech he had and decided she had to put a stop to it. Because when she calls the Bebop and she is clearly in trouble, she wants out at that point, (laughs) for sure. Anyway, we have to talk about how they get to her. We see Jet waiting in line at the toy store. He's like at a classic 90s Toys R Us. I remember these big lines for these big, you know, Christmas toys back in the day. And he's trying to get a brain dream. There's like a Lara Croft inspired ad in the background that I want you to notice. Pretty funny. And he finally gets one. And Ed decides she's going to help him hack into Scratch and see how this program works with the help of Ayn. This is where we get the name Marshall Banana. After all this time, uh, shout out to our good, good friend, Mod over at the Bebop subreddit, Marshall Banana. Hey, Marshall. <laughs> Marshall, we miss you. Uh, we'll have you back on the show maybe soon, uh, maybe for our finale, something like this. Anyway, I was so pumped. That's, that's the alias they use to get Jet Fakey Fake signed up for the cult. We also, in this scene, get a clear view of the word tomato on Ed's computer for our manga fans out there. And uh, Jet almost dies. That's, that's where this is headed. So two things in this scene that I absolutely love. One, the Scratch website is definitely inspired by websites of the 90s, but it's programmed in such a way that would actually be quite complicated for today. Like, I'm thinking about programming it, and wow, that would really suck, even though web infrastructure has come a long way since then. But two, holy crap, Ayn, you did something. You saved the day. You saved our beloved Jet. And like, this is the first instance where we have seen Ayn being a really super smart data dog. And Ed does nothing to correct Jet when Ayn is hacking, and she is not impressed in the least that he's doing this. No, good boy, or wow, you get a tree, or look at how amazing this dog is. It's just totally under the radar. Jet tells Spike, and I'm not sure how he deduces this, uh, but Jet explains that there is some sort of wave that comes through the brain dream and paralyzes the sympathetic nerve. The sympathetic nerve is part of your autonomic nervous system. It connects your internal organs to your brain via nerves on the spine. If you see a diagram of it, I am actually pretty creeped out. I think I found a new phobia of just this like marionette-like drawing of this nervous system, but okay. 
And it controls a diverse set of physiological responses related to fight or flight. So if you're like in an elevated state of being, your sympathetic nerve dilates your pupils, it increases your heart rate, uh, makes your lungs fill, your salivary glands activate, even maybe you pee your pants a little. That's all this same system. That's all your sympathetic nervous system. And so for Jet to be like, yep, that's what was happening to me. It's a big, a big swing. Maybe, maybe Ayn got him that information, but I guess this is how the suicides are happening. I was a little hung up over how this actually might kill a person. And my two theories are, one, the frequency actually paralyzes someone for so long that they maybe die of starvation. Or the other, that it's not just fight or flight. They also say fight, flight, or freeze. And perhaps it suspends all of your autonomous nervous system, like, and prohibits you from breathing, for example. And I mean, either way would be a pretty gruesome way to die. But in the end, Londes ends up not killing Faye, only just putting her to sleep. This is a really weird kind of interpretation, you know, weird, goofy sci-fi element. We're in agreement, though, that their subconscious isn't going anywhere, right? <laughs> These people oh, are no. just dying. <laughs> also, is this an identity theft scam? I started to think that maybe there was an underlying thing here where if you have to hand over your data before killing yourself, maybe Londis is like then emptying out your bank account or something. And that's how this all works. That's the point of it. They didn't get into that, but that's my theory. So this cult, this very sci-fi cult that rages against like TV and stuff, this headgear is a very big component of what this cult does, right? So I don't know how familiar you are with Om Shinrikyo, but infamously, so in its later years, they had a uh, headgear device devised by the uh, the number two that was assassinated that I talked about earlier. And uh, it was an electrode cap called the PSI, the Perfect Salvation Initiation. And it administered uh, electric shocks uh, straight, straight to your nervous system, straight to your brain matter. And it would cause third degree burns. And it would also cause the users, in some cases, to uh, temporarily go blind. And it would uh, burn the scalp where the hair wouldn't grow back and stuff like that. And there are a lot of pictures and there's a lot of news coverage of footage out there still today of these members wearing these electrode caps. And they were said to sync your brainwaves with Shoko Asahara's brainwaves. Shoko Asahara was wearing a... Uh, a, a PSI prototype actually when he was finally arrested, when they finally went and cut into the walls of uh, Satyon 6 at the group's major compound and literally had to drag him out of the walls. Uh, he was wearing the big goofy electrode cap. So it's kind of interesting to me anyway, that they, they also went with a headgear interface that, you know, delivers a shock to the system. Oh my God. The more I learn about this episode, it's scarier than Pierre LeFou at this point. It's so literal. It's so true. This is a horror film. <laughs> I don't know why this episode, it's very ethereal and calming and soothing and it's meant to be disarming, but like at the heart of it, I'm starting to get real horror vibes. You thought it was calming and soothing? Well, I mean, in its tone, its presentation, it's at least when Londes is trying to like soothe you into joining Scratch, right? Like we're seeing all these graphic representations of like humans in, in photo collage and trying to just generally get you into a Zen state is what I'm, I'm reading as a watcher. But yeah, like all this backstory, at least as a kid in the 90s, I had no idea any of this was so devastating. My God. If like if you were a kid in the 90s who had grown up in like a time and place where, you know, just thousands upon thousands of hours of post sarin attack, Om Shirikyo coverage was on TV, you'd probably like be singing a different song. I was watching Nicktoons, I think. <laughs> so some of the writing was already on the wall. I'm interested in knowing how many people predicted this and how early in the episode. But Londes never existed. And once Jet, Ed, and Ayn figure this out, Jet realizes they have to go to a place called Alice Valley Hospice. They are going in disguise because as a hospice, not a lot of the people there get visitors. These people are sort of taking their last breaths and 
there's no, unfortunately, I guess, reason for a lot of people to come see them. That's really sad and unsympathetic, but the security guard seems to think nobody's getting back there. Ed puts on a gaudy pink dress and Jet's wearing one of his really nice looking suits. And they tell a story that I think is a little insensitive in the light of like 2021 mental health awareness, but they basically imply Ed has a twin brother. He's inside the hospital and knowing that he was alive drove poor Ed insane. And that's not nice. That's not a nice way to treat Ed's personality, but it works. The guard's crying and Jet and Ed get to go inside to meet the true Londis. Simultaneously, Spike has gone to track down Londis slash rescue Faye. And this is where we come across the bounty hunters who have all slept to death. This scene is one of the ones that, as an adult, Jamie, completely backing you up here, this is, this is just a horrifying monologue in which Londis basically justifies his own actions, saying that these people are practicing a faith they decided to follow on their own free will. People believe in God because they want to. And in this horrible, hopeless world, humans created God to give themselves certainty and to have something to believe in. And a theme that this episode really closes on, first in this dark way and later in a, in a, in a brighter one, is that like, how dare we judge people for coping and doing their best to soothe themselves in a troublesome world? This left me very bothered in a modern era where I think we all have loved ones or people we know who are maybe buying into conspiracy theories that are actually dangerous. We see the consequences of that and how they affect pe the people all around us right now. Just hard to watch. It was hard to watch a man say, yes, I know what I'm doing to people and they want it and it's fine. And yet when they're cutting the connection between Ronnie's uplink to the internet, Ronnie says, what did I do? I think I know what you did, dude. Uh, you were killing a bunch of people. And they paint Ronnie as someone who should be empathized with or you should feel for this kid. You know, his age is similar to that of Ed's. You presume he's an amazing hacker alongside Tomato and the other hackers from the manga, for example. Yet. There's this point where Spike walks into the television tower and says, if you want to dream, do it by yourself. So it's hard for me to believe this 13-year-old genius wouldn't fully comprehend what he was doing at the time, given all of his very high plateaus about beliefs, bombarding people with information through the television, making people lose their sense of reality. I don't know. I This is one ending that didn't stick its landing for me. I agree. I think they're trying to make it complicated, as you say, like this lonely kid, he can't use his body anymore and it's unfair. It's a terrible fate for this kid. Jet calls him on it. Jet's like, you're not a kid anymore. You're a scam artist. And to say, I don't know what I did. It, it reads as narcissism. I feel like uh, there's a great applicable modern lesson here that Yes, you can have lived through trauma. Yes, you can be struggling with some real shit. And you have the freedom to do what you want with those emotions. And you have the freedom to sort of process your feelings how you have to. But the second you start harming other people when you're going through that journey, you're not an innocent anymore. It's not an excuse. So Londis doesn't actually exist and it's a child. It's a child lying in hospice, and he is deaf, he is blind, he has no motor skills, he cannot react. He's in a vegetative state, a persistent vegetative state. Shoko Asahara uh, was born mostly blind. He was legally blind. He had partial sight in one eye. And uh, when he was a small child, his very poor, very large family, who could not afford to take care of him, sent him to a state boarding school for the blind. And he uh, was essentially for all intents and purposes, abandoned by his family. Like uh, other students, you know, they'd get to go home for visitation every once in a while, or their parents would uh, occasionally send money or snacks or something. 
everyone but Asahara. So Asahara was very angry at society, at his family, at the world for essentially, like, I guess you could say cursing him, which I don't you know, personally agree with, you know, a quote unquote, like a disability being a curse, but he felt like he had been cursed. And he, he had, the, like I said, this chip on his shoulder. And so he became a bully. He was a malignant narcissist way before he was ever a fake guru or a cult leader. He would make the students bully each other, fight each other, call it pro wrestling. He would pretend to take students to go get haircuts and then say that they owed him like a hundred bucks, things like that. At the end of the episode, regardless of whether or not you think that this child, you know, you should pity this child or empathize with this child or whether or not he's criminally responsible or whatever. At the end of this episode, you have a child, a lonely, angry child who has crafted this persona for himself. He's quite literally projecting it and using it to not only validate the pain he feels, but also to inflict pain upon others. And at the end of the day, I mean, that's what these malignant narcissists do. So to me, yeah, I guess you could say that it didn't stick the landing, but I personally disagree because it that felt particularly salient, knowing what I know. Uh, that isn't, and that we're not even getting into the lost generation stuff because what this child's like 15 at the time, and Jet still says he's responsible for his own actions and he symbolically puts those handcuffs on him. There were children who got dragged into Ulm, and one of those actually uh, executed. He was uh, famously uh, brought into Ulm when he was still in high school because he had a bad home life and stuff. And even though he uh, was technically never a terrorist, he was high enough up in the organization that even though he was initially given a life sentence, the prosecution decided that that wasn't good enough. So they appealed that. And then years later, they stuck him with the death penalty. And uh, his name was Yoshihiro Inoue. And uh, he, he was executed in 2018. And his last words were, I didn't think it would ever be like this. So I don't know. There are lots of different ways that you could interpret this episode, the way it ended. I think either way, it's a sad story, right? We're, we're watching this poor kid trying to make sense of the world that he has access to and make connections with people that he couldn't otherwise. But to your point, though, the own individuals got sucked in, uh, whereas he was actively trying to make people like him, yes. you know, trying to remove them from their bodies, uh, essentially killing them. So I, the, terrible story either way. Um, but I don't think I would have as much sympathy as Ed does at the end of the episode. Yeah, Ed looks back and says that she hopes this time the child can have good dreams. And I think this episode is so close to the end of Cowboy Bebop because it is a catalytic event, especially for Faye and especially for Ed. Faye still has amnesia. This near-death experience was not the answer to escape her questions and escape her debt. And Ed, too, I think, realizes what can happen to a person, what rock bottom looks like for someone who doesn't feel like they belong. And both of these characters, literally in the episode that comes after this, once and for all decide they need to pursue belonging and find that place because they've seen multiple examples now of what happens if you just run out of time. To that end, the preview for Ep 24, I nearly cried when Ed was humming with Kino Coin, and I know I'm going to need a whole box of tissues next week. Woof. So before we sign off, let's talk about, in a more realistic scenario, when we're not just watching an anime that ends a couple of episodes from here, what do we think happens to Faye after this experience? Has she successfully gotten out? Will this continue to affect her? Um, will she ever be tempted to go back to a place like this? Or is this maybe a truly one-off experience? What do we think? Now, as far as Faye is concerned, uh, what we do know, I mean, you can talk to all sorts of uh, cult survivors. Now, survivors of cults, high-demand groups, even abusive relationships, you don't walk away unscathed if you're lucky enough to just like walk away. It sticks with you and it doesn't even have to be a murder death cult. It can just be your regular old silly kooky breathing cult or just anything really. 
Cult hopping is something that comes up from time to time. And you see that sometimes in people who lead extremist, you know, cultic uh, groups that are like political extremists, right? You know, someone might check out of a neo-Nazi group and find themselves drifting towards another extremist group because like it's comfortable to them, you could say. But more often people will just leave and they'll spend a fair amount of time just trying to reconcile what they went through, how it happened, and how it's changed the way that they perceive the world around them. They might have trust issues or something like that. There's all sorts of stuff. Uh, some people have a more of like a traumatic response. So I think, you know, as far as Faye goes, she's not just going to be back to normal. But I'd also like to think that, like, you know, she, she did successfully sever because she did go through a traumatic experience, you know, whether or not she's got her memories back or not, like the person she is now. I mean, phew, that was a, they, they, they really shocked her brain, man. And when she said uh, to the Bebop crew, you know, like, I think I'm going to escape my debts after all, I took that to mean like she thought she was about to die and she was kind of scared. So it'll stick with you. Yeah, same here. So having never really thought that deeply about this episode before, I think that maybe a week of time has passed since maybe Faye left and joined Scratch and ended up finding Londa's or, or what we are to believe is Londa's is a giant television tower. In that time, I'm not certain she would have made enough connections with enough people to have been fully, you know, indoctrinated into the belief system of Scratch. I also think she's a badass all around. And if she really did want to remove herself from a cult, she could easily deal with all the blowback there is to be had. But ultimately, Faye is still a very selfish person. And I don't necessarily see her vying for the approval or the interests of other cult members. I would imagine she would think that they're beneath her. I'm interested in the fact that you say it was a week. I I certainly thought it was longer, but I don't have any evidence for that other than it's just what I felt in my gut. The episode cuts away with one last speech from Londis before the televisions go out. And it's very similar to what he was saying to Spike, except he's not saying it in a sinister, like, I got you, bounty hunter kind of way. It's that outward-facing recruitment sort of speech that we started the episode with. It's a much more luring and optimistic spin on the same sentiment. And he's saying things like, our bodies are just too small for our spirits. And This ending really resonated with me again because I do think we're living in a time when a lot of people feel hopeless and a lot of people feel despair and a lot of people are tired and need to put that somewhere, need to cope with it somehow, do something with it. I think people are more vulnerable than ever. And I really found myself kind of scolding myself for like judging how other people make do and get by. If we're talking about, you know, fandom can get sort of cultish, sure, it can. But if watching your comfort show, like if watching She-Ra for a 30th time is what gets you through it, like if that's not harming anybody and that's healthy for you, you can't, you can't judge. It's really rough out there. And so I think I'm walking away from this episode this time trying to, on one hand, respecting how people are trying to get through a very difficult time in history and trying to tone down my own judgment, but also to have more open eyes to the red flags of your QAnons and your conspiracy theories and your traps. It's so important, I think, that we watch this right now, and I'm really glad we did. So, Sarah, we have really enjoyed our time with you today. You have brought such specific knowledge to this one that it has made me wonder what I have missed in like the entirety of the rest of Bebop. Because if something can be this tied in to real life events and I didn't know it until today, gosh, we're still just scratching the surface, no pun intended, of this anime. If our listeners wanted to check out your social media or find your work online, specifically knowing that you're going to be doing some tweeting about this podcast, where would you like them to look? If you want to find me on social media, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Nezumi underscore Ningen. 
Excellent, Sarah. It was so great to talk with you today and learn so much more about this episode than I had even fathomed. It really brought to life, you know, the future of 2071 and how the world is coping with things like cults during that time in a way that was way too relatable. So uh, we really appreciate your expertise and your time with us today. Thanks for letting me come on. On the next episode of Bebop Beat, I cry for approximately an hour and a half of audio. It's hard luck, woman. Oh, no. Oh, no. Thank you for joining us, Bounty Hunters. For our podcast season one finale, we want to include you as our special guests. We're looking for one to two minutes of audio from Bebop fans from all over telling us about how Cowboy Bebop has affected your life. What are your favorite characters? How has your viewing of the anime differed since we were all little? Or just what hill do you want to die on? What's your spiciest take? You can send those to bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com. For more specific instructions, check out our Twitter at bebopbeat or our website, bebopbeat.com. Can't wait to hear your audio. Thank you for listening to the Bebop Beat. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at bebopbeat. Our email address is bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com. The Bebop Beat is hosted and produced by Jamie Sanchez and Lauren Fates. Our editor and associate producer is Angela Geis. Our logo and art assets are by Kat Janda. I often wonder what will happen when I rewatch this show in another 23 years and how wild the future will be and yet how still relatable it will be to the show. Some of these things are timeless. And I think that's why like, you can look back on something like the Kaczynski episode and just automatically pick up on what they're putting down.